This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Black Lives Matter movement seemed to galvanise the entire country, bringing renewed attention to the issue of Aboriginal deaths in custody. But Indigenous people are still dying at a rate of one a month. Dennis Eggington is the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia, and he's been a long-time advocate for reform of the system. And he joins me now. Dennis, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you very much. Good to be back on the show. It's been a while since we last caught up with you. What's 2020 been like for you? Because it's been a crazy time for all of us. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it has been. And of course, uh, through, throughout the pandemic and the uh, the COVID scares, we've, we have had the Black Lives Matters uh, uh, movement. And, you know, we, we gathered about 10,000 people over here in the West. And when I looked out on the crowd, it was just huge. But um, so many non-Aboriginal people there supporting uh, the whole world with, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's quite extraordinary, wasn't it? I grew up going to protests, but I think we always celebrated if we got about 40 people there to see the numbers <laughs> that turned out was, as you say, quite overwhelming. Why do you think this moment has hit? Now, you've been advocating for these issues. Um, you know, almost every time a case comes up, you've been raising awareness through your role at the Aboriginal Legal Service there in WA, through your role as a leader in the community. What do you think came together to make this moment uh, that saw so many people take it on as an issue? Look, I think if if it was one thing, I think it was the brutality of the shootings that were happening in um, in America. We certainly knew from earlier on in in our movement to try to get a Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that things were happening where and we knew that people weren't all dying because they were sick so but i think it was done behind doors i think when it came out into the the raw openness of social media and and the creation of that space in today in today's times i think it was just so brutal and so in your face that people uh, realized that um that something had to be done. I mean, and I think that that's true for lots of people. But when you see it in black and white on TV, uh, with no no hold, no holes barred, then you're compelled to have to do something about it. This spotlight's now on an issue that the community's been raising all along. And, you know, obviously there's, as you say, renewed conversations about it. But from where you sit right at the coalface, are you seeing any practical changes as a result of that increased um, scrutiny, or this increased interest in the issue? Or do you think that might flow later? Are you positive or are you confident that there might be changes as a result? You know, we were, we were very confident uh, some time ago when... Uh, we had a police commissioner that showed that he cared. He actually had a had a tendency to tell people that he did have Aboriginal family, came out and apologised, and all of his senior police fell in line with him, and they were uh, making all the right sounds and noises. And to this day, I still have got a lot of time for a number of very senior police, including the commissioner here in WA. But, you know, when you do work at the legal service, you, you see it. You know, just the other day, there was a police officer sitting in the children's court waiting to arrest a child who is already facing the, the magistrate. And you know, one of our lawyers had to say, look, you know, you, you, you're not allowed to arrest children in this court. He said, well, I'll wait outside and I'll grab them as soon as I get outside. So that's the sort of stuff that happens on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, look, unfortunately, 
um, little has changed at that that level where we clash with the police and the community. Um, that war by other means is still still raging quite openly. Um, I'm not quite sure that we'll get change unless we have massive change, social reform of our whole society and um, why colonial interests are still being held above and beyond uh, First Nations people's interests, then there's always going to be this thing happening. I know that um, in your advocacy about those large structural fundamental changes the system uh, needs, uh, you talk a lot about the importance of, I guess, the concept of justice reinvestment, taking funding from building new prisons to programs for young people, etc. It's just wondering if you could share your reflections on how those those seismic shifts should should happen. What what sorts of things do we really need that would make a system different? Particularly when you say we can even have police commissioners who can say things and their hearts are in the right place, but it just doesn't transfer through the system as a whole? No, look, and um, I don't even profess to have any real answers other than, uh, you know, this country needs to embark on a new history. Leave leave this one behind and let's get on with some real, real change. Um, in the meantime, yeah, we can have um, uh, programs like the run that's running out in Burke and having good results. I think that anyone who um, is prepared to put money back into uh, social programs that our young people can get into. Um, in our Noongar way, we used to take our young men and young women, the women, the older women took the young girls that at, at a very early age, you know, 10 to 12, and the young boys even between the ages of 10 and 15, and we would nurture them through life and get them through to um, adulthood and, and look after them. And I think that any programs that, can do that will make a lot of social change for our mob. It just seems to me that um, those traditional ways of looking at looking after our young people have slipped away on us a fair bit. To that end, uh, I was very pleased to hear the Matu people over here who are um, from the Western Desert area have been calling for all of their young people, uh, the police and the courts and everyone to give the young people back to them so that they can they can do exactly that, nurture them in a very cultural way. So, look, I think that, that there, there are some of the answers um, that can happen. And, of course, uh, unfortunately, we still do have this bleed and read attitude and this law, you know, get tougher on crime uh, policies and things when election times come around. And, you know, people are hoodwinked into thinking that, um, you know, jails make people safer and they certainly, certainly don't. People people aren't reformed in jail. They come out the other end. Um, uh, one of our lawyers over here called the monster factories, um, particularly the juvenile centres. And, and to some extent, he was probably right. I mean, it's just there's no real effort to make to um, have uh, programs, although I've got to say that on a positive note, I've the Inspector for Custodial Services here in WA and of course the inspect we have this great system where we have an inspector that answers to Parliament, not to any government bureaucracy. So and he's got the right of entry to go into any any lock up and um recently he's been into Bankshire Hill, the the juvenile centre here in WA and was very impressed by um, some of the programs going on there. But um, you know, that's once again that it's a shame that people have to going to lock, lock up to get that kind of support and help. 
Last time we spoke, you expressed your ongoing concerns about the funding or underfunding of our Aboriginal legal aid sector. What are the latest developments? And can you talk a bit about what the proper investment in our community controlled legal services would actually mean in terms of change? It's a difficult question because uh, one thing is that I personally think that it's what's happening in, in our polity within our society that that creates the need to have an Aboriginal legal service. I think there are some areas of need where where it's essential, but to uh, to continue for organisations like even like our AMSs and us to have to increase funding means there's something fundamentally wrong in the first place. But um, recently uh, there was a massive change to our legal services. We we no longer um, are funded by the Commonwealth Government. Well, in in a way, we're not. The, the Commonwealth has given states and territories five years' worth of funding for our legal services. Um, there hasn't been a great increase in that level of funding. In actual fact, for an organisation like ours, which services the biggest police jurisdiction in the world, by the end of those five years, the last two years, our funding will be of such limited amount that we're not going to even be able to keep up with inflation or um, offer um, increases in pay to staff, which, you know, our sector is like 30, 30% behind um, the, the legal aid commissions. And and so people um, uh, need other types of, of support to be able to come and work for us. And, and once again, you know, uh, we offer this whole range of of wealth of experience for young lawyers coming through and they get to do things that they wouldn't get to do anywhere else and get the experience that they need but but yeah no look it is a really real problem Larissa I'm not I'm not denying that but um, it's just an indication that things are still wrong out there when our services are so underfunded and and so overworked you know we're talking um, people carrying 30 case files uh, at, at one time, and that's that's just an incredible amount. You know, some of our courts are having 80 people at the matter at a time. So when you when you go to court, you're not talking to someone for 20 minutes or so and getting their side of the story and stuff. You're just saying, uh, "Yep, yeah, you're here. Tick off. You're good. I'll see you in court." And you know, it 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 denies our people the fundamental human right or the fundamental rights in this society, which are the, those principles that underline the rule of law, they're, not, they're just not afforded to us. You know, there's no equality about it at all. One area that you've done a fair bit of work in, I guess a bit outside of your uh, work with the ALS, though not unrelated to it really, uh, is in the work of self-governance, representative bodies, building the Noongar Nation. Why has that been such an important thing? What have you seen in terms of why it's so important for Indigenous people to be self-represented and to have that voice? Well, there's two, there's two things. There's the rights about it. So um, it's, our, it's an inherent right to be self-governing. I mean, before uh, this country was invaded and, and occupied, we governed ourselves. I mean... Wiradjuri people governed themselves, Noongar people governed ourselves, the Yorta Yorta governed themselves, and it's it's just a it's just a breach of our rights to not 
let that happen. And, you know, if we're talking about um, a reformed country then and, and entering into a treaty, well, we're going to have to be ready for that. And so that they're sovereign to sovereign treaties. They're not, they're not a um, subservient set of rules and inclusion into mainstream society. We're talking about proper sovereign to sovereign. And the only way you do that is to build your strong governance, your, your government. And, um, and the, the other thing to, to all of that, besides the, the rights approach to it, is the, the evidence that um, in many parts of the United States and elsewhere where they've been doing nationhood building and getting self-government into place, um, there's been great successes where people are economically independent, their, uh, their health is, is improved, their, their jails aren't full of those, sort, those people within those, those nations. So it's, it's evidenced but it is our basic fundamental human right to be able to govern ourselves. And that's the, that's the thing that's been taken from us and not given back. Yep, they don't take our children anymore. They might they take them in other ways, of course. Um, the um, out-of-home out of care for our mob is just out of the roof. But, you know, Snake and others are doing a wonderful job in advocating for that space. But our jails are still full of young people. Yep, because that's the war that's still waged, waged against us. But... I think the evidence is there. I think that it's our basic human right to be able to govern ourselves. And then and then when this country is ready to sign treaties with uh, our mob, that they're actually sovereign to sovereign treaties. So that, that's what drives me, Larissa. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about how to better deal with at-risk youth, the importance of culture and connecting young people with their culture. And just reminded hearing you speak then about the importance of our our nationhood and the vitality of our our um, culture in terms of that. But we've seen some incidences over this year, particularly in Western Australia, where cultural heritage sites have been destroyed, showing the weakness of those laws. And I was just wondering your thoughts and reflections on the need to better improve those um, heritage protection laws and perhaps um, your thoughts on what we need to do more broadly uh, to have people better understand and appreciate the importance of Aboriginal culture. Look, I think there's a, a couple of things. One is that, um, once again, um, the laws are very weak around protection because they're seen as being Aboriginal heritage. You know, a 46,000-year-old human occupation site has got to be got to be important to the human story not just our story not just our heritage it's got to be seen as being important to the whole human journey and when it's not it becomes uh, just an aboriginal thing uh, it's an aboriginal site of importance well yes it is a site of importance and it's, it's absolute desecration by blowing it up and i'm glad people from rio tinto lost their jobs but i'm saddened that people didn't see it for what it was it was a part of our human journey on this planet. And when it becomes, when we become important as a part of that journey, I think people will think twice about wanting to destroy what is their heritage is just as much as ours. But until people are really punished for it and, and, and have to, you know, give up whatever they have to give up and governments get strong about things. I mean, WA is just a state that has gone crazy on mining royalties and they'll do anything to protect the mining industry. 
we need to demand a, a, a better deal from, from governments. And um, I think in this case, the Commonwealth also has a responsibility because constitutionally they have a responsibility to for the betterment of, of our mob and they just can't let states and territories run wild over heritage laws and stuff and uh, they've they've done it in Tasmania, they did it in the Northern Territory. So they you know, the, the Commonwealth can step in if they want, but um people have really got to see the the true value in their hearts about what's ours and and what's theirs as well. I mean it's we've got the oldest living cultures in the world. I mean people should be learning from that, not blowing it up and destroying it. So that's my thoughts anyway. That's a lovely piece of wisdom to leave us with. Thank you so much yet again for coming by and joining us on Speaking Out. Uh, always, always a pleasure and um, and it's great always talking to, uh, to you, Larissa. So thanks for having me on. Dennis Eggington is the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia. 